1: Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and today I'm super excited to welcome Will Dean, author of the brilliant book and my favorite read for January 2021, The Last Thing to Burn. Welcome, Will.
0: Thank you very much, and thank you for your kind words. It's it's good to be here with you.
1: Well, you've seen me rave on about your book over social media, so I'm very excited to talk to you about it today.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's um, it's always nice to to hear feedback from readers.
1: Now, where are you beaming in from today? I love your Twitter feed. I love looking. I think you you showed this aerial shot of your property and just forest wilderness. Tell me about where you are today.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I live um, pretty wild in in Sweden in the forest in the middle of a big moose forest uh in a little clearing in a in a wooden cabin that we built and we're from where we are we can walk pretty much in any direction for about a day and we're still in the same forest so we live kind of off-grid you know we use uh, our own well for water and we use our own firewood for heating and cooking and that kind of thing so it's a very quiet simple kind of life really
1: mm, i love that and i wanted to ask you does this environment help you as an artist
0: I mean, in some ways it it can because I've got a lot of headspace to think and I've got a lot of time. There's no distractions here. There are no restaurants or cafes or cinemas, bookshops, There's nothing here. So I've got plenty of time to think and read and write. And I think kind of reading is kind of the most important thing there. But then again, I did have this romantic idea that I'd have all this time to think and stuff. But actually, I spend a lot of time chopping wood, fixing my well, (laughs) Uh, fixing my dirt track through the forest so I can get in and out shoveling snow so there's it's kind of a double-edged sword thing it's it's nice but there's a lot of um, kind of manual work to do
1: all right and I'm impressed with the wi-fi though you must have some good wi-fi out in the forest
0: I mean this is the good thing about Sweden right I'm doing this through my phone there's no wi-fi really but it's just 4g mobile mobile broadband and it works great it works really well you can go on top of a mountain here on an island and you've always got 4g
1: Wow, that's crazy. I have spoken I'm in Sydney and Australia and I've spoken to people in Melbourne and had far worse Wi-Fi. So I'm super impressed. <laughs> <laughs> now love the book. Like I said, really want to get into unpacking the book. Um I'm an English teacher nerd, so I'll be looking at it from that perspective. But for people who haven't yet picked up the book, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what the last thing to burn is about?
0: Sure. So The Last Thing to Burn is a tense thriller, and it's been likened to Room by Emma Donoghue and Misery by Stephen King. And I think that's a fair kind of comparison. It's a very claustrophobic, taut story set in the Fens, which is this flat, featureless landscape in the UK in the east of England. And really, it's it's set on a little tiny two up, two down cottage, farm cottage on a vast farm. And there's only really two main characters. A man and a woman. And the man, the farmer, Len, he's holding the woman captive. She cannot leave. And the the thing that's not allowing her to leave, the thing that's preventing her from leaving, isn't like being chained to a wall or anything like that. It's more that he controls every aspect of her life. So he, he films from every single room. He controls what food they eat. He doesn't allow her any privacy or any kind of, any any sense of self, really, or identity he sculpts all of the fields around her so everything she can see because the landscape is so flat everything is his land so it's just a horrific horrific situation to be in she can see for example like six or seven different church spires in the distance villages and she can never get there she can never uh, get to help the book opens with her trying to escape this place and it's yeah it's just very tense when i wrote it i had a a knot in my stomach the whole time.
1: Well, I had a knot in my stomach and chest, I think, the entire time I was reading it. And I actually, like, you know how they say you're on the edge of your seat and it's just a cliche that you use. When I finished the book, I actually found myself on the edge of the lounge going, wow, I really was on the edge of my seat.
0: (laughs) I should put that on the cover for the paperback.
1: <laughs> it was a funny moment. I thought, oh, this is funny. Um, no, look, I read it in one sitting because I just had to get to the end and it is that tense book where you just need to keep turning the pages. And I wanted to know because the setting, it almost becomes another character. And I think part of the magic of the book is feeling as suffocated as your protagonist and feeling that repression of the single setting. But as a writer, I wanted to ask you, how challenging was it or was it challenging at all to keep the action moving in a single setting or did it not matter?
0: It's not something I really thought about. I mean, the the idea came to me, first of all, I just saw the landscape, you know, in my mind's eye, one night at midnight, this idea came to me. I saw this flat flat, uh, agricultural land with no neighbours and I saw this tiny little cottage. And then I saw a figure from a kind of aerial point of view in my mind's eye, I saw a figure walking around the cottage and going in and out all day long but she never ventured very far and I I came to understand she couldn't leave she wanted to leave but she could never get away and that was the beginning of the story so the landscape is really integral to the whole idea and it is also the landscape of my youth that's where I was brought up between zero and 18 I lived in this very kind of bleak flat landscape in the UK so I'm very familiar with it and I do find it quite eerie the fact that you can see so far but the distances are always enormous and the skies are huge. It's just a very specific kind of interesting landscape for me. Um, And yeah, it's almost like an open prison. You know, she can kind of, she can walk out of the cottage but she can never get very far because the distances are too vast.
1: And that's what I found so interesting because when you think of imprisonment, you do, like you said before, you think of bars on the wall or doors are locked. And it's it's I found that actually even more terrifying that you were had this almost freedom where you could sort of roam around the outsides of the house, but that was was this invisible prison because he was always back and always watching her. And I just found that absolutely terrifying.
0: I, I think it's terrifying as well. And I, you know, I've I've worked on farms and I, have got farmers in the family. I know farms well, and farmers are always around or they're often around. They're often on their own land. They're either popping back into the farmhouse to get, you know, a mug of coffee or, or do something, get a key. And then they're out again in the back. again. you never know when they're going to come back. So for her, she's just terrible because she, he can see her wherever he is on his farm. He's out on the tractor, you know, a couple of kilometers away. He can see the cottage and he's always racing back. So she never really has any sense of personal safety. She's always wondering, when is he going to return?
1: Mm, and you felt that when you read it. Now, am I right in saying the idea for this novel, as you just sort of touched on, came to you in one night? And I want to ask you, how much did it change from that initial idea, You know, that great brainstorming that you're thinking this is going to be a great idea, to the book that I hold in my hand?
0: didn't change that much it was weird like this is the first time this has ever happened to me probably be the last time but yeah it came to me at <laughs> midnight the idea and then by 6 a.m so sometimes when I get an idea at night I'll write a little note down on my phone or I'll I'll just let it go but this time I, I went with it and I didn't sleep from from midnight to 6 a.m by 6 a.m I had the whole kind of narrative arc of the story the whole mood wow. the key characters yeah it was strange and then I did six months of research um and thinking and kind of just visualizing what the story would feel like look like and then I wrote the first draft in three weeks so it was the whole thing was very intense actually
1: yeah and maybe that adds to the tension in the book you know the way you wrote it maybe that is on the page
0: Uh, maybe I don't know I feel like I write that fast first drafts that fast because I'm terrified of it falling Mm -hmm. apart on me and I want to keep that world Whole when I write it and uh, but I think the, the positive side of that is there's a lot of negatives like it's a very unhealthy process <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it to anyone but the positive is that it's you do have that momentum I think in the storytelling because I'm 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 there in that farm you know I'm kind of seeing the world through her eyes through the main character's eyes and I'm racing to get to the end of the story because I'm telling myself the story really for the first time properly when I'm doing it.
1: I think you just touched on something so important and relevant then when you talked about writing and terrifying of that world falling apart because you have these great ideas and you've seen the meme where your picture in your head is this amazing, you know, landscape and detailed, and then you see, you know, the stick figures of what you actually create. I I love that idea of just being just terrified so you just quickly write it as fast as you can because once you have that many words, then you can do something with it, I guess. But if your world keeps falling apart, it's hard to go back to
0: absolutely and like if you if i was to write a draft in a year or two years like a lot of my friends do i would just lose confidence in it i would start questioning it and like forgetting the the feel of the first part of the book when i get to the end of it and i would just i don't know i would have a crisis halfway along so i feel like when i'm when i'm writing a first draft i'm kind of holding up a whole world imaginary world all of these characters with all of this backstory that never makes it into the book but that i kind of feel and understand and I can't do that for that long. I'm like a zombie when I write a first draft and the whole process is like an exorcism that kind of floods out of me. <laughs> and, um, you know, a month is, is long enough to be in that state and then I'm exhausted at the end of it. And it kind of, I, then I put it away for about six months before I read it.
1: Okay. So that's an interesting process So get it all out, then go back and redraft it, research and then leave it alone for six months. And when you came back, I mean you said it didn't change that much what were the things that you were looking at changing or adding or altering after that six months because you had fresh eyes on it
0: yeah exactly I do have fresh eyes I'm kind of quite distant from it at that point I've been working on other things and I'm always quite pleasantly surprised because within those as those six months proceed I'm starting to think oh my god this is not going to be a good book this is (laughs) this is terrible I start doubting it and then when I read it it's like it's almost like I'm reading it as a reader because I've had so much time away from it and then I don't know, a lot of the things that I've worked on over the years, because this was back in 2017, when I wrote the first draft, a lot of the things I've worked on were tiny, with language details, you know, like Len's dialect, he's got this very strong kind of East Midlands dialect. And that was too strong in the first draft. It was very authentic to what I remember the men around me talking like when I was a kid, but it was almost unreadable for anybody else. <laughs> so I had to, I had to tone that down and find the right balance where it's real. And it's very him, but it's also readable and it flows and it
1: doesn't throw you out of the story. Yeah, I was going to say that because if you're trying to understand what he's saying, you'd get interrupted. And the, and the, it's so important for this book particular, I think, to stay in the moment. Now, your book explores some very serious issues as well as being a psychological thriller. I mean, you explore human trafficking and the vulnerability of women. Why was this important for you to explore in this book?
0: I think it was. it became really important. You know, when I had the idea, it was just basically one character. And her situation, I didn't really understand that much about her. But as I researched and as I thought it through, I understand, understood her backstory, where she came from. She comes from Vietnam, why she traveled to the UK, her kind of hopes and dreams, the way she was exploited initially financially. You know, this huge debt that she would have had to repay and then how she came to be exploited by this then. And her sister as well, who has a a slightly different story. She's working in Manchester at a nail bar. And doing those subjects justice was really important to me. So that's why I put in so much research to make sure that I got that part of the story as authentic as I possibly could. It's a really important part of the story. Um, And the horrendous thing, the terrifying thing is that this this kind of thing in in, in, in various different shades is happening all over the world right now Mm. it is a heinous, huge crime that isn't talked about that much so I I, you know I didn't want to tackle this subject on a kind of macro level I just wanted to tell one person's story one fictional person's story to try and give a a feel of what it might be like
1: Mm. did you find the research difficult confronting horrific at times
0: for sure yeah i did and shocking in that i didn't quite understand the scale of the problem before i understood some of it but it's often the kind of news story that you see but you kind of glance over and think that's a terrible thing but you don't get in deep into the personal story of like what is this like on an individual level Mm -hmm. not on a national level not on a on a ngo level but just as a person how would this how would how might this feel So that's that's the story. It's about one person's uh, journey and it is a thriller, but it's very much also a story of hope and love and family and resilience, I think. And this is her story, not his very Mm. much like he is quite a faceless demon, a faceless villain for me. And this is very much her story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the voice was, you know, it was very relatable, very distinct and you got right into her head. So I think that's, that's where the tension and where, you know, I was on the edge of my seat because you were with her the whole way. And I thought that was, that was very well done. And you just mentioned hope and resilience and perseverance and loyalty. And the book is also bleak as well, because it deals with those bleak, serious issues. Did you have to deliberately balance the two together or was that something that just came naturally throughout the writing process?
0: That's a great question. I think it really is important to have some kind of balance there and some signs of hope and that there might be a future, there might be a way out. And even little, very, very small things, like if it's extremely bleak in a particular chapter and then Jane or Tan goes outside and finds a sweet that she's kind of secreted into the walls of this house, a hard-boiled sweet, and she just gets a tiny lift, just a tiny bit of relief. Or she she reads a few pages of of Mice and Men, this book, which is Len's mother's book, and she manages to escape that way, which is something I think we all do, escaping through fiction and story. Or she 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 kind of taps into her memories, her wonderful memories of her family back home. So yeah, I think the the light and shade is important. And the first half, especially, is very bleak. But you hopefully you always get that sense of hope that there is something that might change here that she might change um and I think writing in that way is is it's all done on a subconscious level it's not something I kind of like oh my goodness this is dark I need to put in some (laughs) happiness here it's more that it just kind of feels natural like the breathing of a story the the natural highs and lows and and I think that comes from me reading great authors really it just comes from reading
1: Mm. You referred to the classic novel *Mice of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, and I wondered how you saw this book fitting into your book and with your protagonist.
0: I mean, there are definitely some parallels between the two stories. Um, the whole idea of George and Lanny talking about their potential future, this alfalfa patch and their rabbits and so on, is very much like if you're in a terrible situation, you... You often do kind of take yourself out of that world for a while and and think of something else that's better. And that's exactly what the protagonist of The Last Thing to Burn does all of the time. And it was an important book to me as a kid. You know, I, I was brought up without any books in the house, no books at all. And none of my family went to school past the age of 16. They weren't readers. They thought I was quite odd that I was such a reader and just trying to get as many books out of the library as I could and Of My and Men was a book that really impacted me as a kind of a young teenager
1: so like
0: it felt like a natural fit to go in there.
1: Hmm. So with no books in your house how did you go then and seek them out was it you going to the library or a teacher who introduced you to them what was it that drew you to books when you didn't have them at home?
0: As a little kid as a kind of four five six year old kid I was just very shy and nerdy so I was uh badgering my mom to take me to the mobile library and we live very rural so the library was a van a truck we used to drive from village to village different days of the week and she was great and she would let me you know go there and borrow all the books i could and i would just devour them and reread them and write little stories and then later on i've got to credit my english teachers who were you know i had a couple of great teachers who were just brilliant and passionate and they they explored storytelling in different ways like i remember we read a few books and Shakespeare and stuff and we read it at we read different parts. I went to a boys school and every every boy read a different part or read a different uh, paragraph and that was great because it brought it to life. And thank goodness for for that English teacher.
1: <laughs> There's nothing worse than sitting down and everyone reading Shakespeare silently to themselves. It's not the way it's meant to yeah, be. Read. It's tough. <laughs> And <laughs> what draws you to this particular genre? I mean, it's one of my favourite genres. And when, you know, your book came to me, I was—I don't know why. I, I'd read nothing about it. I just read the blurb and I opened the first page and I thought, I have to read this book. And if I can, I have to speak to you. And I was right when I got to the end because it was, it was a fantastic book. But what draws you to writing in this genre?
0: I mean, I don't really think in terms of genre very well. I'm not good at thinking like that. It's more that I like tense stories. Mm-hmm. I just like really tense immersive storytelling. That's what I love to read, you know, whether that's Muriel Spark or Patricia Highsmith or whether it's Michelle Faber or Ian Rankin or, or Jane Harper or whoever. I just like to be sucked deep into a story. And I like I don't know, I like tension. I like like you said, you know, sitting on the edge of your seat. I enjoy uh-huh. that sensation of being being so drawn into a to a book. And my books I think spread over a few different genres often they're kind of thriller but then they they spread into different genres as well and it's not something i ever think about when i have a story idea it's just like i've had this idea i'm going to go with it see where it takes me and i'm lucky i have a very bold brave agent and editor so they just like they let me kind of have quite a lot of free reign and and we just see what what comes out the other end really
1: No, I like that idea, though, because I think you can have limitations put on yourself, I guess, if you have to tick these boxes of this particular genre, you know, so you don't want to be limited in, you know, in how you write.
0: Exactly. And even with the length of this book, you know, a lot of my books are longer than this, and this came out a little bit shorter, and that was just the natural length of the book. It's a very tense book. I think if it was twice as long, it would just be too exhausting to read it. I
1: have a heart attack. Too much
0: of an ordeal. (laughs) And... uh, yeah exactly and thank goodness my agent and editor were like this was this is the right length of the book don't worry about it we're not going to ask you to write more
1: how many words was it around about because i know normally sort of that kind of genre is about ninety thousand words what what was what did this one come in at? yeah
0: exactly i think normal like the normal range is like 75 to 105 mm. something like that and like you say most of them are 85 90 and this is 65 so it is wow. a little shorter but it feels it feels very much full length to me yeah, <laughs> when I really read it.
1: it too. Yeah, it does. And it is because of that tension and because you yeah. are so, you know, involved in the story and the whole time. Well, that's probably why it didn't feel so long as well when I did read it in one sitting. you know, Sometimes I do that. I'll pick up a book at 6 o'clock. <laughs> p.m. and then I'll find myself at yeah. 2 a.m. still with the same book because I can't put it down <laughs> so and that's a good feeling you know with all the distractions we have with social media and tv and whatever it's a good feeling when you when you're pulled into that book and you don't want to come out of it
0: it's really addictive and and also when I'm writing like uh, because I write the first draft fast there, there's no chance for there to be any fat in that mm. writing it's it's automatically quite stripped back and then when i reread it and i edit myself which i do for a long time i try and trim as much as i can to really refine it down to the essence of the story
1: Mm, i like that now i was speaking to craig sisterson the other day and he said he knows you well and he alerted me to the fact that you have these wonderful videos the video series to help aspiring authors by he said pulling back the curtain on querying agents and other aspects of the industry and I, i watched a few the other day tell us about this
0: yeah, Craig is great. Craig is, is 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 wonderful. Yeah, he's great. Um, Yeah, I, I just figured when I tried to get an agent years ago, it was just so <laughs> terrifying and difficult and such a secret little world. And most people don't have any contacts and I never had any contacts. So I was just like, once I was published, how do I give back a little bit? How do I help the next load of writers who are coming through who don't have any contacts, who don't understand the publishing industry at all, like I didn't. And I thought the best and most uh, kind of democratic, accessible way to do that is just put videos up on YouTube for free so people can just read them as they watch them as they wish, rather than doing like a course in London or something. That's that's not helping the right people. So I, I put these videos out occasionally when I have time. And it's, yeah, it's about how to write a query letter, how to start your first novel, how to read certain books that are that might be useful to you when you're starting out in different genres. How and, and like how publishing works. What's the difference between marketing and publicity? All of these things. And I talk openly about advances and money and uh dealing with an agent and everything. Cause it's like it's it's I think it's good to lift the lid and just share what you know.
1: Mm, I love it. And that's something else I just love about the book community. Everyone is just so giving and so altruistic and just so here, have all my knowledge and you know, it's on the internet for free.
0: It's true, it's true. And And I love the community aspect as well, you know, podcasts, reviewers. I love going to bloggers. I love going to events and festivals all around the world and meeting readers. You know, I was in Hong Kong Book Fair uh, two years ago, which was fantastic. Meeting lots of people who were reading my books. And it was just the community aspect is great. And writers always help each other out and help out the the next uh, generation coming through.
1: Yeah. So you look at the world and the world can be a bit bleak and then you just go back to your tiny little community on Twitter and the world's good again.
0: (laughs) That's exactly it. We need that right now.
1: (laughs) We definitely need that. Now, we'll finally, last question, I ask this of all my guests, why do you write?
0: Uh, Who knows? It's so difficult to know exactly why. It just feels very like something that I kind of just do. Um, I'm obsessed with stories. I'm obsessed with trying to work people out. I'm very curious I think as a kid I felt like an alien (laughs) I felt like this somebody from a different planet who was observing other humans I wasn't really participating much I was just looking and trying to trying to figure things out everything was so inexplicable and complicated and still I'm still the same now I I like to write and inhabit a character so that I can try and figure them out Mm -hmm. and try and understand more and that's it i mean i just i just i can't really not do it and the first drafts that i write i write one or two a year that's my favorite they're my favorite weeks of the whole year i just get a huge buzz a huge high when i'm writing a story telling myself a story for the first time i just love it so parts of the process are difficult and challenging but i love those as well i enjoy the challenge and i just i just get a kick out
1: of it i guess Mm, great answer. I love hearing people's answers while they write, and often, like you said, you don't know. It's just something that you have to do. But it's about that love of story and the curiosity of humans and humanity, I guess.
0: Yeah, just just that empathy thing of putting yourself in someone else's shoes for a few yeah. hours. is good for everyone to do that. Yeah, I think absolutely. it's uh, something we need more of.
1: I was about to say that <laughs> more less people need. <laughs> Let, we need less people going out doing the things that they're doing that we see on the news and just going inside with a book. It would be much, much better world. Thank you so much for your time, Will. I knew that this was a special book when I first picked it up and first read the first page and then never stopped. And intense, brilliant, exploring a number of important issues. And certainly for me, it's only January and I'm already like, this is my favourite book of 2021 so (laughs) thank you so much for not only writing it but for spending your time today chatting about it and unpacking it with me
0: thank you very much it's been uh, it's been great to chat with you thank you